Welcome to Faith Seeking Understanding. I'm John Green, and I'm the host. And here we are. We're at the 14th day of March in 2021, and we're the fourth Sunday in Advent. So just a couple more weeks to go in Advent. We're not far from Easter. It's hard to believe that that could possibly be true, but it is indeed true. We are close, close, close to getting to um, Easter, and it just seems unbelievable that we could have come and gone through an entire year when we haven't celebrated together um, Easter. We just got to to this week, the one-year anniversary of this pandemic, and and so I don't know how you're faring during all this. We've got shot, uh, vaccinations out now and, and the promise of another drug, actually, that I saw earlier this week, and I have no earthly idea where we are or what the timeline is. The president spoke this week and suggested, that well, that maybe by July the 4th, we'd be able to get together in small groups and perhaps celebrate July the 4th together with family and things like that. I'm going to tell you the truth. Personally, I do what I want to do, more or less. We had dinner last night with friends and had a wonderful time, and we've been doing that for you know months. We've been gathering once a month, at least, to get together and have dinner together. And so I'm gathering with friends now. I'm not hiding myself from the world. Um, it's... You know, it's a personal decision, and, and I'm going to let it go at that um, because there's no benefit to me saying anything else. But at the same time, I'm really weary <laughs> of this, to be honest with you. We had a nice hike yesterday. Suzanne and I went out and, and went out in the woods. We went and did a hike, actually, that we have done three other times. It's supposedly has this great waterfall at the end of it, but every time we've been out there, there's a place where you have to cross, um, I don't know what you'd call it, creek whatever but it's about 25 yards across there and so you you know been trying to pick a way across and find a way to get across there without you know trying to walk through the water uh, because i can't walk on water and um so yesterday i finally said you know what to heck with it i'm going to get out there anyway well we got out there and suzanne didn't want to cross she didn't feel comfortable or safe doing so so we got to the other side and or i did and there was a guide there coming back and i said so uh, how was it you know, how's the rest of this hike? He said, I'm going to tell you, on a difficulty scale of 1 to 10, this is a 10. Well, you know, all well and good, but I have no earthly idea what his um, level of expertise is or how much experience that he has. And so I'm, you know, okay, whatever. And uh, I'm a bigger guy than you. You know, so I should be able to do this pretty easily. And, and he said that, you know, it's... Um, he said, the book says that it's very difficult, uh, this part is. It's a very difficult hike. And he said, there are places there where you're standing on the side of a hill and there's not really many places to get purchased. You're going to have to scramble some. And there are places where if you take a wrong step, you're actually going to fall 50 to 75 feet and land on the rocks down below. Um, and I said, well, is it worth it? He looked at me. This guy was probably my age, maybe a little bit older. He looks at me and he says, yeah, it was. I said, okay, great. I'm going to go ahead and do that. And so he could see Suzanne sitting on the other side. And he asked me, he said, um, what do you want me to tell her? <laughs> I said, I'll tell you what. You tell her the truth. You can tell her whatever. Tell her, you know, tell her it's difficult. Tell her all that she needs to know. And uh, it's fine. And so I appreciated him saying that. Well, I started walking off. And he kind of hollered at me and said, oh, hey. I said, yep. He said, uh, follow the red flags. There's red flags up there. If you follow those, you'll get to where you're trying to go. 
Well, I was determined to get there in spite of the fact that at the beginning of the trail, there's a big sign that says attention and these places are off limits. And so, okay, so now I've, I've had the sign, I've had um, the difficulty of crossing this thing and Suzanne being unwilling to go, this guy telling me it's a 10 out of 10. And then, you know, he tells me to follow the red flag. So I go. And he was exactly right. It was not an easy trail. And later I found out that he told Suzanne he had done about 500 waterfalls last year and has already done 100 this year. So he is more experienced than I am, to be honest with you. So anyway, I got out most of the way and then finally decided, you know what, this this scrambling thing, it really is actually pretty dangerous where I am. And, and Suzanne's over there waiting on me, and I don't really want to have her have to deal with what could potentially happen here and not be able to contact her and have her now panicked and we've never that's the only time i'd ever seen anybody on the trail so anyway turned around and went back and as i about halfway back i realized you know what nobody marks a trail with red flags you mark a trail with blazes on trees things that are be there over time you put red flags out for a very different kind of a reason right you put them out as warnings they say don't do this but, uh, hey, when you're determined to do something, you don't listen the same way. You don't pay attention the same way. And so we ignore sometimes the warning signs, and, and we can say, you know, I'm just so determined to do this that I'll have my way. So anyway, I did get back perfectly safe and sound, which was good news. I was happy about that. But it also gave me, you know, sort of a little teaching that I'm going to do that will be on video and will be on the YouTube channel, probably within a couple of weeks, I'll get that up there. But but it, it stands as part of kind of who we are as people, and, and it fits in with, with the things that I want to talk about today. Um, we seem sometimes not to learn very easily, and, and Will Rogers, I've said this many times, said that there's three kinds of men who learn three kinds of ways. One of them learns by reading, the other learns by observing, and the other, well, he's just got to pee on the electric fence for himself. And based on the story I just told you, I think you're pretty sure which one of those three people I am and my learning style. So <laughs> that being said, now here we are when we come to the lessons for the fourth Sunday in Lent. We're, we're in Numbers 21, verses 4 to 9. We're way deep in the wilderness here as far as the time is concerned. In the chapter before this, um, three huge things actually happened in the chapter before we're in today. First was the death of Miriam. The second was there's no water any longer and they, they can't find water. And so God tells Moses to go and speak to the rock, as is at Meribah. <clears throat> he, he tells him to take the staff and assemble the congregation and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And he took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded, and then they gathered the assembly, he and Aaron, before the rock, and he said to them, Here now you rebels shall we bring water for you out of this rock. And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank and their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you didn't believe me, to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I've given them. So here Moses is is going to be he's refused now from leading the people into the promised land because he didn't obey the Lord he struck the rock and therefore at some level he, he did two things here now you rebels 
So he's distanced himself from the people. He's angry at the people, and he's so angry that that he's done this thing that now kind of makes it look like, well, he caused water to come out of the rock. So he didn't glorify God. He must we do this. And so he didn't do what God told him to do, which was simply speak to the rock, which then would have been simple to see that God did it, that Moses can't speak and bring things into existence. Only God can do that because he, well, that's how he created. So then from there, the next thing that happens in that chapter is the land of Edom refuses to allow Israel to come through. And so Israel has to go around the land and then come forward and then Aaron dies. So, I mean, huge things happen in the chapter, you know, so the three who have been the leaders of Israel during all this time, Miriam, Moses, and Aaron, two of them die and the other is now prohibited from leading the people into the land. And you can imagine, and they've also had to go around Edom and God didn't make a way for them to do that. So, it, you can see that that there's a problem here, and and the people are, you know, they know that Moses isn't going to be able to enter the land, and so they're probably feeling a little bit orphaned in this moment. And so so here we go, reading that lesson now, in Numbers twenty one four to nine, from Mount Hor they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. They've got a loop around. To the Red Sea again, and the people became impatient on the way. Well, I guess so. They're nearly back where they started about 40 years before. Not too great. So, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Now, this was the stuff that they had done in the past, you know, right? They had, they had, their forefathers had done that from the beginning. They had grumbled against God. Well, here we are now, 40 years later, and they're back close to the Red Sea. They, they've just lost two of their three leaders, and now they've learned that Moses is not going to be able to go into the land with them. And you can kind of see why. They might be a little testy here. We don't seem to be making any forward progress, and we're back nearly where we started, and but we don't have two of the three leaders that we had, and one of them is not going to be able to get there. And we don't know where we are or where we're going. And they come back to this same place. And, and they say, why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? doesn't seem like we're ever going to get into the promised land. Have you ever waited on something for so long that you feel like you're never going to enter the promise that's been given to you? And here they are, and everybody's testy about it. And who could blame them, right? You've been in the wilderness 40 years. Some of these people had never known anything other than life in the wilderness. They'd heard about this great promise that God had made, but they hadn't been there at Sinai. They didn't know all this stuff. They just knew Moses had been leading them around in circles in the wilderness for 40 years. You know, They might have a little less confidence in him than the generation who was there when they came out of Egypt. And then they say, why have you brought us to die here? Which is what had been said in the past. For there's no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. What is that worthless food? Well, it's the manna that God gave them in the wilderness. And again, this is not the generation that came up out of Egypt and had nothing to eat and then was suddenly given manna. This is a generation that's known nothing other than manna. You could see how if you'd eaten that your whole life, I mean, you start feeding a kid that rice cereal and 20 years later, he's still eating that rice cereal and 10 more years later, he's still eating that rice cereal and nothing else. You might feel the same way, but at the same time, what they're saying here is, is we don't believe in you and we don't believe in God. We don't believe he's good and we don't believe he's great. We don't believe he's great because we don't believe he can get us out of here and we don't believe he's good because we don't believe he will. 
We don't believe he cares about us. He's not providing us food or water, and what he's given us we consider to be just yuck. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We've sinned, for we've spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. Well, good for them. They figured it out pretty quickly that, uh-oh, this is because we did this. They hadn't known fiery serpents before. It was the first time it had ever happened. And they were clear for some reason this was punishment from God for their sin of speaking against the Lord and against Moses. And then they begged Moses to pray, and so he did. And the Lord said, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who's bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. So it's a very strange story, and it's a very strange resolution, right? God says, Make something just exactly like that. Put it up on a pole and hold it up there, and everybody that looks on that and believes that he's going to be healed by it is going to be healed by it. And so Moses did, and the people did. It's a really interesting episode in Jewish history. And we know something else that it made a deep impact on the people that that it happened and how important it had made because we get then if we look over to second kings 18:4, we're thinking about hezekiah here who was a good king who um, cleaned up israel he removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the asherah poles and he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that moses had made for until those days the people of israel had made offerings to it and it was called nehushtan so it, it was so important to them that they decided that the healing was in this in this thing that was made. And God had consistently told them not to make things. And if you want to know why he told them not to make things, well, there you go. That's exactly the reason he told them not to make things, because we're pitiful and we're willing to worship something more quickly than anybody could ever begin to imagine. And so this is the time of Hezekiah. You're talking about more than a thousand years after this. We've got the whole period of the judges. We've got the entire season of, of Saul and David and Solomon and da-da-da-da-da. And now we're all the way up to Hezekiah. And they've still got this thing. You know, God told them what to put in the ark. And they can't worship that because they can't see it. But they can worship the ark as its representation, I guess. And so they kind of did that and were guilty of that. But, you know, suddenly to, to discover that this thing is still around after over a thousand years and they've worshipped it and burnt sacrifices to it, or incense, I mean, so they've prayed to it, it is just bizarre beyond belief. And so here we are. We're in the wilderness and suddenly it's like Jumanji. And then God provides this very strange resolution for it. This thing that looks exactly like the thing that's the problem. But this is something Moses made, and so we're supposed to now look at that. Well, what have I got to lose, I guess is the answer. I can remember Red Fox telling a story a million years ago, and he was talking about there was a revival in the black church, and... and one of the sisters in the balcony got excited and leaned over the balcony and, and fell and happened to grab the chandelier. and She was laying there, or hanging there with a dress on. So she was you know, exposed to the people below. And the preacher said, Anyone that dare looketh will be struck blind. He said, One of the old brothers looked up and said, Well, I'm going to take a chance on this left eye. 
And so it kind of reminds me of, of this. It's just, really? What you've got for me, the solution you have for me is to look upon this fiery serpent and live? That's it? And it seems odd and something we've been talking about kind of regularly here during Lent. It's just God's solutions to things just seem strange. And they're always calling for one simple thing. It's to believe that if you do this strange thing, which is believe, then that'll be enough. In other words, what it's saying is, is that, that all the work is God's. All you have to do is take his word for it and trust him, that that solution is actually good enough. And so we see that here in that passage from John in our gospel lesson today, which is John 3, 14 to 21. And of course, it's got the verse that, that everybody loves the best in it. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life, John three sixteen. But this is right after he has spoken to Nicodemus, when Nicodemus has come seeking to figure out who this Jesus is. And he left confused. And then here, Jesus is still speaking, and he says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And he says this again in John 6. He goes back to this same scene and points to this. And so... It's they had to wonder a little bit about what this means. What does it mean for Jesus to be lifted up? Is it a, sort of a, a metaphor for for speaking well of him, for you know, kind of making him the one that we talk about? It, little did they know that yes, it's a metaphor that we must, as Christians, lift him up for the world by the words that we say and the things that we do in the proclamation of Jesus in all things. But it's more than that. It's actually a literal thing because he's going to be lifted up on a cross in the same way that serpent is lifted up on the cross. They couldn't possibly have known that or even imagined it at the time Jesus says it. But it's, it's real. He's got to be lifted up. And you can see that if you make a serpent and put it on a stick, you've got to have a kind of a cross-shaped thing in order for that serpent to be visible and so that it's hanging there on that cross-shaped thing and belief in that thing hanging on that cross is the resolution to the problem and here it's the same because what is Jesus coming for? He, he loves the world, the cosmos, the, the, the all of the world and he's talking about the people of the world. It's not just loving Israel. It's loving the world that he gave his only son. God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And he's extending salvation beyond Israel into the entire world. He says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is already condemned because he hasn't believed. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and doesn't come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it might be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. It's a powerful word here that he's speaking about God's love for the entire world, and, and it, it's... It's a condemnation at some level of the failure of the people of Israel to do the work necessary to bring the world to him. 
And so God's going to have to bring the world to himself through his son. And so what's the problem that he has come to solve? What's well, death, right? I mean, that's what's going on in Numbers 21 is death. It's death from fiery serpents. We can go down a deep rabbit hole on that fiery serpents thing, by the way. We can go down through Genesis to Isaiah to Revelation to all kinds of places about this serpent thing. But the serpent is a symbol of sin, and that's exactly what the people said. We've sinned, and so serpents become God's judgment upon the people. So now, what's the parallel between the two? Well, in the first one, you have what's the problem? It's serpents, and what's the resolution? It's serpents. It's a thing that looks exactly like the problem. And sin is the underlying problem. And they know that. They know that this problem is not really and truly the serpent. They know it's sin. So in Jesus' case, the underlying problem is sin. What's causing the death, the real problem, is humanity. It's those who are creating the image of God. And so what happens is Jesus comes in the image of God, in the perfect image of God to become the solution for the problem of sin. And we're called to gaze upon the man on the cross and recognize him as our only hope for salvation, our only hope of eternal life, and put our faith and our trust in him and God's solution. And it seems too good to be true at some level because it feels like we need to do something because the problem is what I've done or left undone, and surely that means that I should do something. I should take some active measure, and, and then Paul says, no, you've got it wrong if you're thinking that way, and we all do. When Peter preaches on Pentecost, the response of the Jews for conviction of sin and killing Messiah is, what must we do to be saved? And, and Peter says, repent and be baptized. You know, they didn't think it was going to be quite that simple and that little doing. But that's the response and that's the answer. It's the, in the same way that the fiery serpents and the bronze serpent go together. And in the epistle lesson today, this is uh, Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, Paul is making something really clear, and this is something I think sometimes in sermons we don't make very clear. You'll, you'll hear a sermon that says, well, I was drowning, and, somebody, and Jesus threw me a rope and, a, and a, you know, a life preserver and hauled me in, and Paul says, uh-uh, you were dead. You were dead in the trespasses and sins, and once you walked, you were a dead man walking. You were not coming back. You had to be saved. You were already dead in trespasses. You weren't drowning. You had drowned. He says that you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, acting like everybody else, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And I think that last part is really important because too often we focus on the desires of the body. 
and we say, well, you know, we got gluttony, we've got alcoholism, we've got sexual immorality, we got all this other kind of stuff. But the really critical part that Paul says there is not just the carrying out of the desires of the body, but it's also the desires of the mind. Yeah, man, I can sin more easily in my mind than I can sin in my flesh because I can do that without you knowing. Without any fear, really, of being caught. But that's kind of what Jesus is getting at when he talks about the sin of adultery being, if you've got lust in your heart, you can hide that from your wife. You can't hide that from God. And so it's, he, he's getting at that same thing. And he says, because of that, we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. And he's setting us apart here. We're, not, we're no longer to be like the rest of mankind. We're to be those who are redeemed. We are to be called the children of God. We're no longer the world, as Jesus said in that John 3 passage. We are no longer like the rest of mankind, Paul says, but God being rich in mercy because the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You hear that? You're being raised up just like he was raised up, but you're being raised up in him and with him and seated with him in the heavenly places so that in the coming ages we might he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Throughout all eternity is what Paul's saying. This is not just for today. It's for all eternity you're going to be given this glory for by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not because you did anything. It's not because you were that special. In fact, he's speaking primarily to Gentiles in these places. And, and, but he's applying that same truth to himself. He said, it's God's mercy and it's God's grace that reaches out to every single human being. It was not because of anything me or my people did that caused him to choose us. He did it because of his grace wasn't because of anything that he did that he chose Abraham, that he chose David, that he chose um, Jacob. They were chosen before they did a single thing. It was by faith. It was because belief in him is really all that's necessary here. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your doing. It's the gift of God. And by this he means multiple things. Even faith is a gift of God, but nothing, grace and salvation, all of that, it's all a gift of God. Not the result of works so that anyone may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in. So even the good works that we do, God had set them up before all of this in order that we might do them. So we're just a, being obedient it's not that we've somehow created something good and decided, oh, I'll do this and God will be really proud of me. No, what Paul's saying is even the good works that you do, he prepared in advance and said, here you go. I heard somebody one time, a preacher, make a good analogy, I think, which is that how we cooperate and work with God and do the stuff that we do. He said he had been mowing his yard and his son came out and asked him to help and it was a push mower and so... His son was little, and he said yes, and that's not smart, but he did. And so he said his son put his hands on the lower part of the, the, the push part of it and, quote, helped him. He said, 
I pushed just as hard as I was pushing before, but my son had the experience and the belief that he was truly helping me. He said, I think that's probably kind of how it is with God. He could do all this himself, doesn't need us to do it, but it delights him and it delights us to work together. doesn't mean our works are unimportant. It means that what Paul said here is, is that this is what he wanted us to do. And so that in cooperating with him and doing those works with him, no matter what our contribute, how slight our contribution might be, it's still important. And so I think we have to always consider that. I think we always have to be grateful for the opportunities that we have to serve him, whatever they are, because he need not ask us to help with him. But we need to be grateful for everything that he gives us, not compared to other people, but just because... All things come of thee, O Lord, and of thine own have we given thee. And it's important that we do that. It's important that we don't lose heart. It's important that we continue to be thankful for whatever we have all the time. And that we not grumble against him and we not grumble against those he has set over us like Moses. It's important that we value Jesus highly and raising him up begins right here right now with us that's the important thing that we recognize that he must be raised up in our lives before he can be raised up in the world we must always make much of jesus